support for this episode comes from The Current Report. From data privacy to the future of TV, retail media, and beyond, the world of digital marketing is constantly in flux, so how can you keep up? Well, The Current Report is there for you. Each week, marketing leaders on the cutting edge give you the latest insight. If it's creating a buzz, they'll be talking about it. Subscribe to The Current Report wherever you get your podcasts. Support for this podcast comes from another podcast. The world's most valuable resource, it's actually data. Our data, based on our behaviors, is frequently being gathered, tracked, stored, and sold. So what does this mean for us? Join host Rafi Krikorian for season two of Technically Optimistic, where he'll take you on a deep dive into how our data is being used and what we can do about it. From social media feeds to foundational human rights, Krikorian leads us into territories both familiar and unexpected with openness and genuine curiosity. New episodes of Technically Optimistic drop every Wednesday. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to Decoder. I'm Neil Patel, editor-in-chief of The Verge, and Decoder is my show about big ideas and other problems. So I'm old enough to remember what it was like to fly before 9-11. There were no TSA lines, there was no TSA pre-check, and there certainly wasn't any requirement to take off your shoes. In fact, there wasn't any TSA at all. But 9-11 radically changed the way we move through airports. The formation of the new Department of Homeland Security and the new Transportation Security Administration led to much more rigorous and invasive security measures for travelers who were just trying to catch their flights. Unbelievably, this is the 20th anniversary of the Department of Homeland Security and the TSA. And I think it's safe to say that nobody enjoys waiting in that airport security line. And in a post-9-11 world, things like pre-check are the great innovations of the TSA. At least according to Dan McCoy, who is the TSA's chief innovation officer and my guest on Decoder this week. He told me that pre-check is, quote, a hallmark government innovation program. But what do things like pre-check and the larger surveillance apparatus that theoretically keep us safe mean for the choices we make? What are we giving up to get into those shorter security lines? And how comfortable should we be about that? This week, The Verge launches Homeland, our special series about the enormous influence of the Department of Homeland Security over the past 20 years and how it has dramatically changed our country's relationship to technology, surveillance, and immigration. So we have a special episode of Decoder with TSA Chief Innovation Officer Dan McCoy to see where things like pre-check fit into the picture. Okay, Dan McCoy, Chief Innovation Officer of the TSA. Here we go. Dan McCoy, you're the Chief Innovation Officer at the United States Transportation Security Administration, or TSA. Welcome to Decoder. Thank you, Neelai, for having me. I am a listener, so this is exciting. Um, see, the experience is way different than listening. We're here for a ride. <laughs> Let's do it. Um, oh, no. it's, a, it's a great time to talk to you. The founding of the TSA is connected to like a very pivotal moment in my life. Like It was founded right after September 11, 2001. I was in my second year of college. TSA was formally made part of the Department of Homeland Security when that agency was created in 2003. So we're basically right at the 20-year mark of these agencies and the DHS and the TSA. It feels like a good time to step back and think about what it is they do, how they work, where they can go. Uh, let's just start with your role specifically. I don't think most people know that TSA has a chief innovation officer. What does the chief innovation officer do at the TSA? 
what I do right for for innovation at TSA does perplex a lot of people. Um, there's always these conceptions that I am very tech focused. There's a lot of people that think we're very experience focused. A lot of government innovation groups have been really focused right now on uh, emerging venture capital, emerging technology, and how to integrate them in. I would best describe my role as chief facilitation officer for innovation, right? It's at that 20-year mark, how do you take a step back and say, where do we want to purposefully innovate? And then how do we build the culture, the capacity, the manpower, and the assessment tools to actually go let that innovation happen, either at the local airport level or based out of headquarters where we are now? But you know, my job isn't necessarily to run every innovation project at TSA. There are some that we will obviously do because it needs the protection, top cover, and resources of my office. But what we really want to do is start to educate and empower our workforce all the way down to the officer, our international staff, our cargo screeners, and more to say, hey, if you guys have an innovation or you see something uh, that you want to fix or you have a problem statement that's kind of dropped on your lap, we want to give you the tools to fix it. Because a lot of these things have been challenges for years. And you know, now is kind of the time to emerge and say, what can creativity, design, and invention do to help solve that? I always joke that Decoder is kind of fundamentally a podcast about org charts. And you're describing a problem that I think every large organization has, which is lots of decision makers, lots of priorities, and then lots of ideas that can improve things at every layer of the company that kind of just get lost in inertia or bureaucracy. How does that play out for you? Like, how is the TSA structured? And then how do you navigate that to facilitate innovation, which is what you're describing? I don't know if this is a Reed Hastings line or somewhere, but, you know, ideas are great, but until you kind of move them through the process and they actually start to add value, they're just ideas. We have thousands of ideas across TSA. It always surprises people that as a regulator operator, right, we have the checkpoint, which everybody is aware of and everybody kind of interacts with, but our regulatory scope extends into multimodal pipeline security um, different parts of the aviation sector. So the ideas canvas a really large ecosystem of transportation security. What my team is doing now, and this is part of the innovation doctrine that we're rolling out, is building that pipeline of ideas and kind of centrally locating it so that we can identify what are ideas that are really going to be impactful that are getting underrepresented in the groups they're in right now? And then why are they getting re underrepresented? Is it the structure of the organization, let's say it's a really operational focused org that culturally they just don't like to take risks. They don't like to do things outside the standard procedure. Or is it that they just don't have the tools to necessarily do it at the local level and we need to go drive training around design thinking, agile development, lean model development into that specific area and then let that innovation, you know, that natural diffusion of innovators, that 2% in that group really take hold and say, we're going to solve our own problems. But my role in that facilitation realm is take the macro view of all of the challenges to innovate at TSA and start to see where it's really getting bogged down and then focus in on removing those barriers. But you're right, we have a lot of operational capacity and it generates a lot of ideas that we should be working to innovate around. So you're using a lot of, I think, probably for listeners of the show, familiar language about Sorry. how to... No, I mean, it's great, but it's... Yeah. Right, this is pretty familiar language around agile development or faster processes or turning ideas into products. What's your background? How did you become the chief innovation officer of the TSA? 
So prior to joining TSA, I was at a consulting firm where we were focusing, kind of moving into new business, new markets with emerging technology, right? So where we were, we said, government isn't necessarily doing the best job right now. There's really these strong pockets to adopt new VC technology or VC-backed technology, emerging tech. How do we help facilitate that process as a consulting group, whether it be white labeling a solution or providing startups with the inside, the cloud space, the kind of migration to an environment that government is willing to accept? How do we move startups into that space and then help them get government clients? So for me, that was really where I started to understand, oh, there is this emerging tech space that has so much applicability in government. What's shifted over the last, you know, 20, 30, 40 years is as much buying power as government has, there's emerging technology that doesn't necessarily look at us as their main client. Their 10-year roadmaps, their addressable market to keep them on the horizon for 10 years, keep them relevant, doesn't include us. So how do you now start pulling that technology in? So that's kind of where I started, but there's so many different concepts of what innovation looks like in government. There's just pure innovation management, right? Ideas, tools, education. There's these niche software factories, you know, idea platforms, crowdsourcing, ideation, hackathons. For me, it was this idea of, okay, how do you bring that all together into one innovation portfolio? And then what agency really has the authorities in and of itself to go build that? And luckily, TSA is one of those agencies. We have a lot of autonomy given to our administrator to build things like that. So it was an amazing opportunity to come in and say, how do we build that really big innovation portfolio, test what elements work better for us, which ones don't? Because again, we have a pretty unique mission that we're going through and testing those different viabilities now. All right, I got to ask the two big decoder questions. How is the TSA structured? So main structure right now, I would say, everybody interacts, right, with the field. So we have four large groups. Two are generally support groups. So there's operation support and enterprise support. If you think of it just by definition, operation support, main focus is on the field and making sure that uh, the checkpoints have all the new technology, intelligence, vetting services, things like that. Enterprise support, IT, human capital, all the way down the line. The mission focus and where people will interact most likely with TSA is our security operations, which is in the field. That also is the folks that work in cargo screening. It's people that work in multimodal. So anytime you see teams TSA badged at Metro Stops or Amtrak, that's that group. And then we have the federal air marshals as well, uh, which came over following the, the cut over to TSA. And that is our second operational group. My team sits within our front office. So I think a key learning from The first pass of innovation at TSA, I have one predecessor, was the innovation group has to be as close as possible to the administrator. A lot of times what we're doing is disruptive. Even if you look at mission model innovation, which is akin to business model innovation, there's not always the appetite to push back against the standard procedure. So for a lot of projects, a lot of process development and a lot of new technology development, it was pretty critical that we sit as close as we can to leadership so we have that background protection to get done what we need to get done, which is an innovation in and of itself. It is end user value, but sometimes it is a little disruptive to the standard way that we do things. 
and then you talked a lot about how you facilitate things, you make things go, you're, you're kind of building models for innovation. What kinds of decisions do you make and how do you make decisions? I, I know this is an old trope. I feel people say on Decoder all the time. I try to make as few decisions as possible, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. No, this is the, this is the get out of jail free card. It like, is, no, I, know. I run the whole place, but I don't actually it's, do anything. The team is the heart, but really like, that's, <laughs> that's it, right? It gets back to that idea of, of chief facilitation officer. The things that I decide on a daily basis are really working in concert with the rest of TSA in my team. So specifically for the innovation team, right? They'll come to me, we, we've got this down, again, we stole it from kind of Agile, but they come to me with blockers and they come to me for intent. So, hey, we outlined this new thing that we want to get done. We've done customer discovery. We know it's going to add impact, but we're running into this barrier. Do you want to come in and try to remove it? Do you want us to work around it? Let's have a discussion around that. So not all of the decisions around innovation should be coming into me, which is good, Right. There's an old Defense Innovation Board publication around what does a chief innovation officer do? And it hits on this idea that the notion of a chief innovation officer pulling in all innovation projects defeats the purpose, right? Having one choke point for innovation really defeats the purpose of why you would want innovation throughout an ecosystem, why you would want it throughout your organization. So I try to limit the decisions I make but really, when it comes up to me, it's because we've hit a barrier, we have genuine enthusiasm around something, or it really does need some type of protection from my level to say, let's keep this on the tracks, let's make sure it happens, or we make the decision to dial it back, and we do that quickly when we need to do that. This is, I think, the third time you've used the word protection. I think this is the first <laughs> time anybody in Decoder has described their job as protection inside of an organization. What specifically do you mean by protection? Um, so if there's three types of innovation that we kind of look at, there's continuous process innovation. How do you make things move a little bit better along the standard path in our standard op model? There's business model in our situation, mission model innovation. How do you deliver in a little bit of a different way? And then there's disruptive innovation. Those ideas that are either new trainings or new opportunities that are outside the standard scope of TSA how do we make sure that those take root? And I've probably sounded a little pejorative about it. I mean, this is really what we're here for is something like a design thinking training, not necessarily within the standard operating scope of TSA, but we've recognized its value. How do you make sure a program like that, that is resonating well with the workforce, how do you make sure that the outcomes of it still have the ability to grow even when they go back to their home organization or they move outside the innovation scope, how do you make sure that that takes root? So that's really what I meant. Sounds probably a little bit worse <laughs> than it should. I apologize for that. We have to take a quick break, but when we come back, we're gonna talk about how the TSA measures success. Support for Decoder comes from Mint Mobile. Imagine you're at a very fancy, expensive restaurant. And as you're browsing the menu, wondering how you'll afford anything on it, you notice the filet mignon is a mere $10. At first you think jackpot, but then you immediately think, wait, what's the catch? Now what do suspiciously cheap steaks have to do with your cell phone bill? Well, we're used to seeing quote unquote great deals from overpriced wireless providers and also thinking, what's the catch? But with Mint Mobile, there is no catch. 
For a limited time, their wireless plans are just $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. You can get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month. Go to mintmobile.com slash decoder. That's mintmobile.com slash decoder. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash decoder. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on an unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need Constant Contact. Constant Contact is a marketing platform that makes it easy to reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and connect over email, text, social media, and more. Whether you're a marketing guru or just learning the ropes, Constant Contact offers writing assistance tools and automation features that make it simple to say the right thing at the right time. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. We're back with Dan McCoy. I would say the government, rightly or wrongly, is often perceived as having more inertia and more resistance to change. I would also connect that to the idea that it's hard to know if the government is doing a good job. Right, Like, uh, you know, one of the big tech companies, they're public. You can see how many iPhones Apple sold. You can see what the stock price is doing. There's just all these, like, public metrics of success or failure in, in a way the government can't really provide. So I, I think my key question here is like, how do you measure success at the TSA? How do I know it's working? From an operational perspective, right, this is where I think every government group kind of says this, where our failures are public, our successes are quiet. So from a TSA perspective as a whole, it's you know, are things moving as they should? If we break it down to our three main components, right, deter, detect, and then uh, disrupt, are we doing that successfully, right? Are we disrupting attacks before they happen? Are we detecting anything at the checkpoint as kind of our last line of defense? As those are moving along, I think that's the metrics of success, at least for the public and public trust, that most resonates, right? We're catching firearms at the checkpoint. We're catching potential explosives. For innovation, those KPIs and those OKRs that we're really trying to figure out right now, we don't want to get ahead of ourselves and then sterilize the process so it really is just, oh, you're going to do these five things. As we sat down to put together our innovation doctrine, which is kind of a multifaceted, it's a, it's a you know, new communication method to the field, it's a communication method to industry, but the big thing we wanted to put in there was these aren't hard and fast rules. This isn't a prescriptive way to do innovation. It's guidance. It's the idea that if you do these things, it will start to happen organically. What we look at as the success of that pipeline is 
really ideas to velocity and volume to velocity. How many good ideas are we curating and then moving into the next phase? How quickly are we moving those ideas through the pipeline? And some of those are ideas that we kill. Some of those are ideas that come in and we go, this doesn't have a fit in our enterprise. We don't think this will actually add value. Or we think that it actually opens up a new security vulnerability. At the end of the day, we're still a security agency. And it makes it hard to innovate sometimes in highly regulated spaces. But we have ideas that fall out of the pipeline plainly because it opens up some new risk that we weren't anticipating. And that's our metric of success is how many of those ideas are getting life, they're getting oxygen, and they're moving through this process, this common process that, again, we're not telling people exactly this is how thou shall innovate. We are saying that if you do these kind of activities, you will naturally move into an innovation space. So you mentioned that the three pillars, right? It was uh, deter, detect, and disrupt. Yep. That sounds pretty good, right? You deter the bad guys, you detect them, and then if they try to do something bad, you disrupt them. Are those the key metrics? Do you measure that, how well that's going? Is there a dashboard that's like 15 deterred, 20 <laughs> detected, one disrupted? It's a lot more micro than that. That's okay. the macro view. Um, this is where the kind of divergence happens. And everybody listening should be really happy that there is still the operational side of the house that is doing the day-to-day, -day, everything they need to do. And then there's the innovation side, right? We kind of share people back and forth. We pass problem statements and ideas back and forth. But that deter, disrupt, detect is really in the larger part of TSA, our 60,000-person screening force for those daily activities. I don't have a lot of insight into that, but what we're doing is kind of making sure that technologies and processes in place to allow people closest to the problem to innovate around it and solve for it, and then naturally move it into a transition where it does get refactored into the rest of the organization, which is, again, mainly focused on those three elements. Let's talk about the actual experience of the TSA and how, how it might be innovated over time. This is going to be unfair, so I'm just like pre-apologizing for an unfairly reductive description of the airport. Oh, no. I would say the only like real innovation I have felt in the last 20 years of the TSA is pre-check and clear. And I'm signed up for both of them because I'm a very impatient man and I don't like to stand in line. And every time I go to the airport, I think I have allowed some amount of increased government surveillance of me because I am impatient. And I, I am uncomfortable with that balance every time, but then I get through the thing faster and I'm like, well, it was worth it. But that feels like the big innovation that we've created kind of two classes of travelers, one that's okay with increased surveillance and everyone else taking off their shoes. Is that something that we should innovate on? Because it, it feels like the, the ripest area, right? We're at the customer experience that also keeps everybody safe. I'm just so happy you were the first one to bring up PreCheck as an innovation, because <laughs> this is something when I came into TSA, it was a lot of conversation. What are we doing around uh, new technology? How are we adopting AIML? What's our policy going forward on IoT? And it was for me kind of going, can we take a step back and everybody acknowledge that the biggest breakthrough innovation we've had it, since inception is TSA PreCheck. And it's a process innovation. It's a network innovation. It's a partner innovation. It's not tech-focused in how it's delivered, but it's adding a tremendous amount of value to the traveling public, and it's adding a tremendous amount of value to TSA operations, right? We have a whole 
other class going through the checkpoint that we do have additional information around. I understand your point, right? Am I giving up more information and the unease around it? We have worked so closely with civil liberties groups through PreCheck and the data collection we're doing as we're doing more around biometrics as well and mobile driver's licensing, that trust component, right? That value of trust is front and center in how we're rolling that out. And then only second to, is it increasing security? So I always look at TSA PreCheck as an amazing opportunity to keep pushing innovation forward. What can you do in this space? Recently, a pre-check lane has opened up in the Bahamas, right? That is another new innovation to move the boundaries of TSA out a little bit, where now we are doing our level of screening at another location, and we're allowing customers that option to come through as they're leaving the Bahamas and then repatriating back to the U.S. Those ideas around pre-check, how do you make pre-check biometric only, right? When you signed up, fingerprints, facial matching, I think a little bit similar to Clear, which you mentioned a second ago, how do you make pre-check potentially biometric only so that Neelai has even less patience, but now he walks up and facial match is done, and then you go about your day, you're not divesting any form of identity going forward. Building around that is a real opportunity for us to innovate. So the TSA pre-check program, I think, is a, is a hallmark government innovation program. But how do you think about that balance, right? You talked about it a little bit, but if I step all the way back and I am old enough to remember what flying was like before September 11th, the goal was not tons and tons of surveillance or identity verification. It was, it'd be cool if you didn't have knives and guns in the plane. Okay. How do you get back to that state? Because I, I look at the increased amount of surveillance as a net negative, yeah, I think it's fascinating that you are talking about it as a net positive. Like, we'll do more surveillance and your life will be easier because we, the government, will be able to trust that you are a secure person because, I don't know, we've, we know you haven't bought a bunch of fertilizer in the last six months or whatever, right? Like, that is effectively what PreCheck is doing is it's keeping tabs on you so that when you get to the airport, it knows, well, you, your profile is safer than average. Well, how do you get back to the place where it's, what we're going to focus on is the scanners, right? What we're going to focus on is the detection of what's in your bag so that we don't have to surveil you. We just have to know that you in this moment do not pose a threat. This is a definitely a hard one to answer from my perch, right? From the innovation perspective, there's intelligence and analysis in the back end that's doing a lot of this work. We have partnerships with the FBI for those background investigations that you're talking about. Um, it's, again, another kind of line, right? But if you ask somebody, if you ask an end user, design the best app and what features will it have? They want it to look slick. They want it to be frictionless as far as, as mobility and, and application development. But it's only until you probe them, well, do you want your data to be secure? Do you want to know that you're not being tracked? That's kind of, I think, what I equate the TSA process to, right? For me, most of my life, TSA has been the way that we go through the airport, we want to maintain that level of security that we know we need in our post 9-11 environment. What we do want to do is make sure that we're building that level of clear trust with passengers. This is the data that we have. This is what we're working off of. But what I think most passengers want is less friction going through the process. And again, that back-end understanding that that data is safe and secure if I can drive a point to your question, right, I don't know if we're ever going to go back to 
only a goal line defense of screening for threats. I think we will always have, and we've seen the benefits of a multi-layered approach, which is that disrupt, deter, and detect. Detect is our goal line, right? It's a interception in the end zone on something that could have gone awry. The deterrence is we have new technology, we have new capabilities, we have trained officers. You probably shouldn't try anything in the aviation space. And then this disrupt is the whole national security ecosystem saying, we have different things that you should think about what attack vectors, what vulnerabilities you target, because we want to disrupt those where they are. What's keen on my role in this, from the innovation perspective, innovation in those responses are one for one in that the agility that we maintain is the only unwavering advantage we have going forward. So we want to make sure that as we are agile in developing new solutions and addressing new threats, that we're getting them out as fast as possible so that we can really say security is growing in capability. At any time that we do see, right, this is a decision for somebody who isn't Dan McCoy, Chief Innovation Officer, that we can peel back from some of those vetting services. I'm sure that that is always in discussion, but it's not something I'm really read into, and it's not something I think a lot of people would even let me into the conversation for. Well, the reason I ask you directly to take your point, innovation is broadly not just new technologies. I certainly want to talk to you about new technologies, but innovation is not broadly about new technologies or, I don't know, machine learning and facial recognition, but it's how we do things. I would put squarely in that innovating on the balance between civil liberties and security, which is a the age-old tension of government, right? I mean, how many misattributed quotes about civil liberties and security can we listen to in our lives? And I, I just, I hear you that you want to deter things early, but right. The criticism of the TSA has always been, well, that's just a lot of security theater. You're just scaring the bad guys away with like ineffective things. And I, I just wonder from your perspective as the innovation officer, do you ever think, well, we can innovate on that and maybe get through the, the very difficult balance of like privacy and security and maybe change that equation and, and find ideas from throughout the agency to make that equation better for people in a way that I think has just over time gotten more intrusive. It's it's a it's fair, right? And this is the the public kind of take on the way that we're working today. What my role is and what we've kind of talked about isn't necessarily injecting my presence into that space. How are we rebalancing this? I can't say, you know, I've been in a lot of the conversations around. What does the future of biometric look like? What does the future of mobile look like? What are we doing with some of our background vetting systems as a party to those? My hope is that what you've laid out, right, that can we take a different approach to this? Can we shift the scales back one way or another? I'm not going to be the decision maker closest to that problem to know. But what we want to have happen is that someone in that area has the the lens. There are innovator in that space to go, maybe it is time to disrupt this a little bit or at least shift the mission model a little bit. There's been some change that we've seen at another agency. There's been some change that we've seen in industry, right? FinTech is a really secure and healthcare is a really data secure ecosystem that you give up a lot of data. If there's a change there, maybe it can apply to what we're doing 
Our hope from the innovation team is that those people exist. They're educated on what we want them to do. They're empowered to do it. And then those new approaches that are, again, beneficial to the entire agency and the traveling public, those will take place where they should, which is in that that business unit. We have to take one more quick break, but when we come back, we're going to talk about how new technology is building the next generation of the TSA. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity, but giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's insight assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Hey, it's Tom Warren, senior editor at The Verge here. Microsoft is in an era-defining moment. It's betting on AI as the future of work, its Xbox business is going through transformational changes, and the Mac versus PC war is about to be back on. So I'm launching a newsletter called Notepad. It'll be your inside guide to all those changes and beyond. From details on the next Xbox to that one time every Microsoft employee named Michael appeared on a mysterious email list. Whatever is happening at Microsoft, you'll be able to read about it first in Notepad every Thursday. Go subscribe now at theverge.com forward slash notepad. We're back. So let's let's talk about some of the new technologies here, because I think it, that might be a more useful way to talk about this balance that I've been poking at. So you mentioned facial recognition and biometrics several times. Right? The dream is that you show up at the airport. The airport is an evolving system, knows who you are, unless you just like go about your business and get on the plane. Right. That would be one dream that seems to require like a massive government database of faces. I don't know how you solve that problem of like you show up at the airport and you just like scan. Like I know Clear has a database of faces. I don't love it, but again, I'm impatient. Clear is at least a private company. If they do something wrong, people can can sue them. It feels like there's that check where like if Clear blows it, they can lose their contract, and that's existential for them. TSA doesn't get to lose its contract. So if you give the government the database of faces and they screw up, you're at, it feels like the remedies are less existential. How do you balance that as you think about okay, we got to go out and find facial recognition vendors. We got to go build a system. This is the next generation of the TSA. Yeah. We're doing it in a process right now, right? So first uh, step in this direction is our one-to-one matching. So where are you taking your ID and inserting it into the machine? And you're doing that one-for-one. The face on this ID is Nilai. Nilai has presented himself here. We're good. We're matching that. That's our first level 
over time, we are moving to a one-to-n match, which today is kind of in partnership with CBP, Customs and Border Patrol, where they have a one-to-n system for re-entry into the United States that they use that's in a pilot phase, right? And this is why the innovation process is so important to not only get the technology right, but to get that trust right. Because we're in a pilot that we are constantly gathering feedback from civil liberties groups. We're constantly getting feedback from industry standards mechanisms, ISO, NIST, where they're coming in and they're assessing the trustworthiness of the system. I've always said this of a lot of things in emerging tech, right? Whether it's AI, facial recognition, if it isn't trustworthy and you're going to lose participants because of it, it isn't effective, right? What we need to be talking about with facial recognition and AI is if it doesn't hit these components, if it isn't trustable, if it isn't securable, if it isn't you know locked up for some cyber vulnerabilities, either today or on the horizon, what we're doing is putting into the field an ineffective system. We wouldn't do that when it comes to image scanning with CT and We wouldn't do that when it comes to on-person screening. Why do we think we would do it any different with AIML or with facial recognition if it doesn't hit that level of trust, that level of resiliency, then it isn't effective and it doesn't get fielded. Uh, The clear component is interesting, right? Because they do have their own. And you're right. If there's a breach at clear, they're going to lose customers and that's going to be existential. We don't necessarily have that, but what we do have is those failures become incredibly public. So we're aware of that. And again, we're making sure that this is getting piloted. We're gathering all the right information around it. We're working with groups dedicated to trust and resiliency. And until all of that lines up, it's not effective. It doesn't get fielded. So you mentioned earlier the concept of protection, right? So you've got this new pilot program. We're going to do more biometrics. We know we've got to trust it. But, you know, any project or organization to get it moving, you need to protect it. At the same time, to make something like biometrics and facial recognition trusted, they need to be wildly transparent, right? And there's already a tension with groups like the ACLU, which is filing lawsuits about facial recognition records and how the systems work. That seems to me like, well, you're never going to get started if you know the first thing that's going to happen is a lawsuit. Or you're never going to get all the way to the, the finish line and be as transparent as you think you need to be to gain the trust if releasing the documents results in a bad faith attacks or something. For a government agency, that seems like a, a really difficult problem. How are you thinking about that? It is an incredibly ch- hard challenge, right? On one side, like I said, maintaining that trust, maintaining the operational effectiveness of the program with our passengers and with you know mainly our constituents, the rest of the U.S. citizens, is incredibly important. But Moving to this space does increase the security outcome that we're looking for, right? The promise of TSA is that the security is better today, really, than it was yesterday, either through lessons learned, new technology, enhanced processes going into effect. Innovation is one that, you know, hey, the process is better. It's more secure today than it was yesterday. It sits right on that edge where we know the security benefits of biometrics, right? We know from our intelligence groups, we know that moving into this space, we yield some type of security benefit. Well, actually, can you, to, can you, can I just interrupt you? Can you just very, yeah. give me the elevator pitch for the security benefits of biometrics? Uh, but, so we are moving to a place with technology that matching a face by a machine versus a person 
is starting to be better. And again, for recognizing counterfeit documents, we're moving into a place where machines are doing it better. The biometric component adds that extra level of security that you're binding it to that document. And I I understand the framework here, which is like deter, detect, but yeah. why does that step confer additional security to me on the plane that you know who everybody in the plane is? Because necessarily what that has to imply is you've also surveilled all those people, you know who they are, as opposed to you make sure there's no dangerous materials on the plane. I'm not sure exactly how much of this I can get into, right? This is to your point, that really clear line. And I am really bad at not knowing exactly what I can talk up to and then <laughs> going past it. It'll be fine. Look, this, it's just you and me, man. It's only a few people that listen every every week. Um, <laughs> but that matching right and it kind of working a little bit better to make sure that who the secure flight scan and who we're vetting against matches the person presenting themselves. Biometric is better at that than the traditional matching that we have today. And again, it's only really for now a conversation around pre-check or a one-to-one match with the ID. But there is, again, and I can get more of this from people way smarter on it. They send me out just smart enough to get myself into hot water, <laughs> but hopefully enough to at least make it resonate with, with the public. It adds a security benefit to match the traveler to the vetting that we've done against them. I'm just saying, I don't think this is controversial at all. If you're saying there's a security benefit to knowing who everybody on the plane is, then you have to know who they are. And you can either say we have a, a block list, right? We have a no-fly list. We're going to make sure nobody in the no-fly no list comes through. Or you can say, on the margins, we've surveilled everybody enough that we know all these people are safe and we know who they are. So Neil shows up at the airport. We scan his face. Again, we have some database of information about his behavior that says, even though he's got a bag full of batteries, we're going to let him on this plane. I always have a bag full of batteries. Um, right? Like, that's what that necessarily implies. I don't think that is a controversial statement that authenticating everyone's identity allows you to then make sure they're either not on the bad list or that you understand that the risks are low. I would, yeah, sorry. I would agree with that. I, if I missed that in your initial, your initial question, I apologize. Yes. Understanding who has made it to the sterile side is critically important for us. And again, that now transitions to not just workers at the airport, but yes, folks on the flight, understanding who has gone through and who is on the flight is a security requirement, you know, in the environment that we live today. Okay. And then I guess my, my question there is you can add biometrics. How do you let me know, somebody who's worried about it, that that data is private? Like, how do you, as you add vendors and software and security, right? Like, that is a pretty complicated stack of things. You personally are trying to drive innovation at all the layers of that stack. So things are changing. Like, how do I know that we're adding more tech, we're adding more computers to something and computers are a little dicey. How do you build my trust in, in that entire complicated network of computers? We're adding computers to everything, right? I mean, what is a car today, but yeah. just a driving piece of chips? That's a decoder. Um, that's like a decoder greatest hit. <laughs> it's, it, I mean, cars are computers now, just right. on wheels. Technology is naturally matriculating into more of the checkpoint as if it wasn't already there, right? And that's good from the security standpoint. The trust element that you're hitting on 
I can say now in our pilot programs that we're running, this is back to grassroots. This is communications with the public as they go through. There is always the opt-out version right now for biometrics. That is very clear. Our identity management team has worked with standards boards. They've worked with trust teams like the ACLU to say there needs to be that opt-out strategy. And that is well-documented when you go to one of our pilot sites today. The other assurance, and again, to your point of we just need to verify who's making it to the other side of the sterile area, is all of that information is gone the second you step away from the terminal. So the picture of you that's captured on that device, we don't need to save it. We've got what we need to get, which is that was Neelai. He presented himself. He is on a, I can't say one of the vendors or all the other vendors will get mad at me. He's on a plane <laughs> later today. Um, and we know he's on that plane because 72 hours ago, we, we knew that he was going to get on that flight. So that's all we need to know is that you've now been granted access to the sterile side. And then what's next is that continued layered detection apparatus, which is, well, it's odd. He has this bag of batteries in his carry-on bag. <laughs> uh, most of us, I think, have moved to like a rat's nest of cords, but he wants batteries. He can have batteries as long as they're not on the prohibited items list. And then moving into either walk-through metal detector or advanced imagery technology, you know, does he have anything on person? It's that layered approach, but that's what we need, is we just need to know you've entered the side, we've matched you to the person we expected to be showing up today. The facial recognition, the background, we don't need that. The algorithms will be worked out through commercial vendors who are doing a lot more in algorithm development and facial recognition, not necessarily for some of the other components of TSA that are a little bit more owned and operated by us, but for the facial recognition part, all of that data is gone the second you step away from the terminal. It feels like once you add a step to the process, the step never goes away, even as though you're adding more steps. So I'll just ask directly. Let's say we assume there's facial recognition biometrics at every airport. Can people stop taking their shoes off? Layered approach. So it, you still, it, you still it, need the shoes. I knew it was coming. This is actually where we're, we're moving to, right? And this is the promise of the innovation team. This is the promise of, of the technology we're working on. We have a pilot program today. We had an amazing partnership with one of our national laboratories to start rolling out a shoe scanner, right? The thing with PreCheck today, that was a convenience of PreCheck, right? Is that you're giving up some of that information so that you can have these conveyances as you go through the checkpoint. We are moving to make enhancements to the standard checkpoint as well. So shoe scanner technology is very nearly on the horizon. Pending you know, year-over-year -year budget requirements from the Hill, that's something that will be coming out probably within the next two to three years, I hope, at least in its pilot phase. We're moving away from AT, which is our current X-ray machinery, and moving into CT, which is computed tomography. That gives us a 3D rendering of the bag. It gives us a lot more insight into what's in it. The idea of moving to all of these technologies is not just that it provides the officer, right? The core of what we want to do is to provide a better environment for the officer to apply his or her main skill set, which is security and assessment that we train them on. All this new technology will also mean that passengers will start to see some changes as well as they come through. So CT opens the door for fewer items on the prohibited items list. I don't know 
exactly what that's going to look like. That is a risk calculation that gets done by other parts of TSA. But moving in that direction and in bringing in new and improved technology, yes, we will start to have people potentially leaving their shoes on uh, <laughs> with that new technology. We will have hopefully one day water bottles coming through with you because we'll have better technology to scan it. I think one thing everybody should remind themselves of TSA, we don't do all of this because we really want to be doing this. These are based off of historical threats. They're based off historical attacks that we've had that really give us the situation that we have today. But to your point, we're always looking to make changes to that, both for the officer benefit and the traveling public benefit. But it, it does seem like there was one shoe guy and now we're all taking off our shoes there haven't been other shoe guys. And it's hard to attribute, right? Everyone knows the shoes are going to come off. So maybe the shoe guys are deterred. But it seems like the one guy made everybody take off their shoes forever. Is there a calculation in your innovation framework that's like, we're spending too much time here. We can get the time back elsewhere and potentially be safer and more effective? There's changes, right, that we look at of where is there a model shift and again, I think this would be one of them, that if we make a change in the way we conduct business, there will be a benefit. To your point about the shoe bomb, right? I can't say with positive or negative certainty, I can't confirm any of this, but there was one public shoe guy. Yeah. Um, it doesn't necessarily, and this is something I think Secretary Buttigieg said you know, when he was on, is our successes are quiet. So there was one public shoe guy there is still the need for the shoe scan. But within the innovation process that we're looking at, right, what's been asked of me, of our leadership, and I think this is where it goes, we want innovation at every level, right? There is business model innovation that shouldn't be living with me. It should be living in the business. People at that checkpoint, people in that space are always thinking about should we be making a change here to increase security or passenger efficiency? Has some type of threat vector shifted that this is no longer such a requirement going forward? Can we make this change? Yes, no. That's being discussed. It's within the innovation doctrine framework, but it's not something I necessarily prescribe directly as a project that we get involved with. The other challenging thing with all new technologies, especially ones that surveil people, you have no idea if they work equitably or if they work fairly until you deploy them. Facial recognition is actually a great example, right? Lots of cases where we see facial recognition systems just have challenges with people of color. Yep. Seems to be down the line. Where are you balancing that out? Where are you saying, okay, in our pipeline, over the roadmaps we have, there's got to be a checkpoint where we say we have enough data and we know this is fair. That's the pilot phase, right, that I kind of alluded to before. And it gets back again. We have, I think, what the teams kind of classified, the triangle of trust with MDL and biometrics going between all of the groups that are involved with it, TSA, the issuing authority, the relaying party, right? That's in the specifics. But it gets back to that core point where if it is struggling with people of color, different genders, if it's having these problems, it is not effective. And we don't want to ever field an ineffective solution that isn't going to yield either the value that we aspire for it to, or it's actually going to degrade what we're doing today. So that knowledge going into it, if this doesn't work on a large portion 
of the population, it's not actually going to be effective in the field. It's going to produce longer wait times. The queues will back up as the machine fails in front of us and we have people divert to the standard process. We'll have slower throughput time within the checkpoint itself. So there is a lot of attention paid to how effective is this platform at actually increasing passenger throughput and increasing match rates, because that's really what we're looking at is, is this a mechanism not only to increase security, is this a mechanism to decrease queue wait times and increase passenger throughput? So a lot of attention is paid to that by the identity management team that's rolling it out. I think they published an identity management roadmap where this is very clearly addressed is the how do we make sure it works for everybody? Um, because we still, at the end of the day, serve everybody. Does that feel like it's, as, again, this comes back to trust. Are you thinking, okay, in order to move faster and to get more uh, new ideas off and running and to make things work smoother and keep people safe, we should talk about that more? Because my experience with the TSA, and I think this is most people's experience with the TSA, is it's still fairly opaque. You still look at the one checkpoint. And then I'll just tell you my personal experience. Like I fly with my wife and kid. She's a white lady. I definitely get more random screens than she does. It's like a joke now with us. I don't know if that's like the data is accurate. That's obviously an anecdote. And I do have the bag full of batteries. Like, right. I'm like, I have a drone in my backpack. It feels like I'm going to get stopped, but that's still the perception, right? Is that I have brown skin and I tend to get stopped at the checkpoint more than my wife who has white skin. How do you, combat that as you roll out technologies that have these sort of known problems in their deployment in the early stages and this sort of like civil rights organizations are in a more adversarial posture with you, I think for good reason, but they're definitely in a more adversarial posture. So I'll hit on the latter point, but I do want to steer back to directly answer your question. I don't know if I would call it adversarial, right? They have a position and we want to be as close to that position as we can. Mm -hmm. It's a partnership, right? This is something that they understand our mission scope. They understand, you know, where we're headed and kind of why TSA was born. So I don't like the idea of calling it adversarial. It's a perception that I know people have. I view it much more as a partnership where they're keeping us, not that we're going to stray afar, but they're bringing the balanced perspective that we really do want to hear about these situations and about building trust. To your point around transparency, right, two of the main elements in the innovation doctrine we laid out, which is, you know, soon to be published across the ecosystem in the field, one is transparency. How are we making decisions around where we invest capital? How are we making decisions around what screening we do? How are we making decisions around our people movements and our staffing? All of that needs to be a little bit clearer in how we had that decision framework because it empowers more people in TSA and around TSA to also be transparent, but also understand this is the expectation. This is how we expect you to act and expect you to deliver. The other, and this is sometimes difficult, it's really familiar in industry, it's really familiar in tech, but failure has to be an option and available for us, right? Move fast, break things isn't exactly how we can operate, but we need growing room to pilot and say, this didn't work and here's why, let's pivot. This didn't work, here's why, let's pivot. In government, that's sometimes really hard, right? Your mission's aligned to Six Sigma, your mission is aligned to zero negative outcomes, but that 
holds innovation back. We have to be able to cleanly run pilots, admit when something didn't work, but all of our pilots need to be structured so that they're not driving such a negative impact that it damages the trust that we're trying to build, nor has a negative security outcome. So it's nuanced, but how we run pilots is incredibly important within TSA, hitting that balancing act of effectually moving innovation forward, but allowing failure to happen in a safe and closed environment. I just want to come back to the, the notion of the civil rights organizations as partners versus adversarial. I'm describing them as adversarial because I think that's the natural relationship that you want, right? The the harsh external critic that's really focused on one narrow aspect of the balance. You're describing them as partners. Do you think they think they're your partners? I, I'm i not going to move into that direction. Okay. I would hope that they would, but it's a, it is a fair question. My first thing I learned moving into TSA, right, had knowledge of it in the past, it is how expansive this entire transportation, right? airport operators, civil rights groups, local law enforcement, tech vendors, the concessions groups within airports, multimodal. There are so many people involved that, yes, there's times we have to deconflict something, but I have maybe taken, it might be Pollyanna, the, the concept that everybody is a partner for us because we all want to move in the right direction and we want it to be as effective, trustworthy, and secure as it can be. So that is Dan's opinion that all, everybody <laughs> we work with is a, is a positive partner as we try to innovate forward in this space. One of the big decisions that an agency the size of the TSA can make is how to spend money, and in particular, what kinds of technologies you might spend money on. You said at the beginning there's a lot of startups who might not know that you're a potential customer. But I'm just looking at the numbers here. You, you mentioned the computed tomography scanners. That's a $781 million contract that got delivered to one company. Are you saying, I'm going to put out RFPs for here's a capability we want, and someone will say yes, and we'll buy that one? Or is it more like you, as the innovation officer with your team, is like looking at the bleeding edge of tech and saying, actually, we might be a customer for you? We just don't know yet, or is it both? How does that work? It's more the latter today, but it's both, right? So these large procurements, the way that government strategically does big acquisition purchases right now, it's years out from when we kind of make that decision. So this award has been the generation of 10 years of thinking, where's the technology going? How are we elevating the technology readiness level of the TRL? How is it getting done through R&D investment? into the science, and then how is that being commercialized with other vendors? My team is now starting to think through, and again, we're, we're relatively new in TSA of how we're approaching this. One thing we hear from startups and one thing we hear from venture capital is we would love to work with you. We understand, we think your mission space, we understand your problem areas, but we don't know how to work with you, right? And the traditional RFP process, as I outlined, can be years in the making and have these really high barriers of entry. Well, government's given us opportunities, it's given us authorities to go test new technology and engage with the startup ecosystem. So I'd mentioned previously, the Defense Innovation Unit uses a process called ATOs, which is Other Transaction Authority. It's a much more available pathway to bring in emerging technology, which is their key focus, right? So how does that translate into TSA? 
well, we have the same authority. What we need to do now is understand what companies we want to go after with our innovation pipeline. What are those emerging challenges that we want to use this method? You know, if the message is in the medium, we want to go solve it in this manner. There's small business innovation research grants that DHS Science and Technology runs. Air Force has been amazing at running those. If you look at everything they've done with uh, advanced air mobility and counter UAS, all of that was really born from the process of SBIR. We want to co-opt that model for TSA and really make TSA a place where people come in and emerging tech comes in and says, I understand your mission space. I saw your small business innovation grant. I understand it's a really nuanced, it's a nascent area that you want us to work in. Let's do it. How can we help? And that's what we're building now through the doctrine is casting out that ecosystem and saying, we're open for business. We want emerging tech to come in. It's far too often something other people in the agency say and other people in government say is, well, if these companies just knew how to work with us, they would be at our front door. But we don't really always make ourselves the easiest group to work with. And that is another key role of a chief innovation officer is how do you make the agency as a whole easier to work with for emerging technology, for academia, for venture capital-backed startups? I talked to a lot of startup CEOs on the show. They're always failing and pivoting. It's just like, right, the, the story of any successful startup is a bunch of stumbles until you find a product market fit. Yep. That doesn't feel like the kind of startups you want, right? You want people who have an actual product that works, I'm hoping. We haven't picked the, you know, seed round, series A, right, the IP component of this. There is a risk tolerance in government. I came from this space in a prior life, right? When we would present companies to government clients, and I even do it myself now that I've transitioned, the first question somebody usually asks is, where else have you worked in government? Because <laughs> it de-risks that, that process of bringing them on board. There are companies that I think have never worked in TSA directly, but maybe are in the aviation space. Maybe they're in the cyberspace that we are trying to regulate. Maybe they're in an AIML space that we're looking to grow into or at least understand the concepts. It will come down to where that pilot has them deployed. So we might work with a, a startup technology in AI and data where all we actually want them to do is help us better understand where we're treating data like exhaust, where we're capturing data, how we can effectively use it. Those lessons learned, right, the longevity of a startup, we hope that we can keep them through that valley and that we can provide funding to keep them alive and show their VCs that there's addressable market here. But you know, we want to work with anybody who thinks that they have a solution to one of our problems. What we need to get a little bit better at on the innovation side is having that catalog, that early pipeline of challenges, curating them down, and then understanding where that ecosystem can help address some of them. So you mentioned the computed tomography scanners two to three years that might change the entire experience. What's the tech on the bleeding edge that you're looking at right now that might change the experience over a longer time horizon? This is where I get to do my exact, this is the disruptive stuff, right? That yeah. my group really is looking at. So I think for us, right, everybody asks me, when do I get total recall? When do I get the process? I'm walking through the airport and there's scanning happening around me, but I don't break stride and I, I never slow down. If there is an issue, 
I kind of get pulled aside. That is something that we're looking at as kind of the 5G now moving into 6G in IoT space. So how can we work to have an array of sensors and sensor fusion that over time works either to replace or is integrated in with our current technology? So computed tomography is is really interesting because that in one space is an AI playground, in my opinion, right? We can have down to the voxel level, artificial intelligence looking at different items in a bag. Again, it will be secure. It's masked. It's not tied to any one person. It is an anonymous bag for the sake of this argument. But you can have that level of detection. And AI is now doing the automatic threat recognition where you're no longer really stressing an officer. You have enough background information to say with a high level of fidelity, we think we know what this is and we think it's a problem. So grab that bag. That's going to have a tremendous impact on officers, how they spend their time and security outcomes as well. The other big kind of emergence that's in our line of sight right now, and this isn't necessarily a how will it impact TSA's kind of delivery of security, but it's how do we need to be prepared for it is advanced air mobility and AAM. So if you're going to now have a whole new conveyance of travel and the promise of it is to decarbonize, which we are all pushing to do, the promise of it is connecting to disparate areas faster and and reduce congestion, that's a whole new mission model for us, right? We don't have a one-for-one on how we would deliver against that. So Wait, I'm sorry, you're you're describing like electric air taxis banging you between cities, right? Electric air taxis, advanced air mobility. So moving either, you know, inner urban. So if you're moving, Miami is big on this, right? Trying to understand how you can go from parts of Miami either to the airport or other parts. That's outside our current mission model, right? We have some overlap that we're looking at applying, but will we put checkpoints at these air taxi locations? Will we allow these air taxis to land directly on the secure side of TSA? We don't understand exactly what their business model is going to look like yet. They're, I think, still figuring that out as the technology grows, as they go through FAA certification. What we want to do from an innovation standpoint is we want to be as agile as they are. To your point before, startups are pivoting. We want to pivot alongside of them so that we're never in hindrance to the market, but we're ready to help bring in the security and safety aspect when that's finally ready to go live. This is probably true of a lot of emerging technology. You always hear that it's sooner than you expect. But with air taxis and electrification, you know we're hearing it's sooner than we expect. So we're trying to be as ready as possible for that to come alive. That's fascinating. I hope electric air taxis are sooner than we expect. I just want to go back to the, we're going to fill the airports with 5G IoT sensors. And it'll be like Total Recall where you walk through the wall and it's an x-ray of you and you can see everything. It's what everybody asks me for. Yeah. Yeah, I will just connect this to a question I ask on Decoder all the time, which is everybody wants air glasses, and I'm going to buy them in one second if you can just tell me people's faces and names. But to build that, you need to build the worldwide facial recognition database. To do what you're saying, you need to turn the airport into like a surveillance panopticon where you're watching everybody at all times and you're looking into their bags at all times. How like that? I'll just end there and we're going over. I know. Thank you for the extra time. But I'll just end there like that seems like a dystopian outcome that you walk into the airport and like dozens of cameras and computers are paying attention to you in a fairly intrusive way and like cataloging your bag. 
I don't want to use the word cataloging, but I get the reference, right? It's assessing. It's funny. I brought it up and I almost now feel like I regret doing it. But everybody asks me when we jump on our design thinking cohorts, when I talk to other folks, when's it going to be Total Recall? When's it going to be Total Recall? I, I applaud you, Neil, for being the first person to go. This is the dystopian view as compared to the frictionless view. But it again, it's the technology we have today kind of moving it around. But if it's not hitting the same level of security and it's making it so people don't want to use it, then again, we would never deploy it, right? It's something that we would pull back and we'd go, whoa, this is creating a negative externality, an adverse reaction that we weren't anticipating. The idea is people want to start going through the airport again with less friction. There is obviously, you are clearly one of these people that's also balancing the civil rights aspect and the privacy aspect of that, and those groups exist. But what we really hear is we want we want a less frictionful environment. That total recall anecdote is some way that we get there. But there would be layered protection on top of that. It's really future out there. And it's still based, again, on years of moving to that place with the idea that it's going to be trusted by the public. It's going to be just as secure and it needs to be effective and, and again, trustworthy in general. If you're an average citizen right now, you're kind of looking at the state of our government, which is all kinds of noise all the time. It's an election year. And then you're listening to Decoder and it's the chief innovation officer of the TSA. How do you look into the future from that perspective and say, well, the two sides hate each other. All of this stuff might get thrown out the window every two years or every four years. How should people listening to this think about the timelines you're talking about and whether they can trust them? There is parts of this timeline, right? There's always parts of government timelines that revolve around who's taking control of the House, who's taking control of the White House. I'll say from the TSA perspective, in my experience in government, is public servants deserve way more credit than they ever have received. I don't know when the narrative shifted, but at some point it feels like it shifted. There are people here that transition between administrations there are people here that transition between different parties that are dedicated and focused on driving improved security and driving innovation forward, right? I am not a political appointee in this role. I am here as a career official with the focus on improving not just the innovations at the checkpoint, but really driving forward that culture of reinvention, that idea that Maybe we can have something akin to the Netflix model of constant reinvention and open transparency and open discussion at all levels of the workforce. We're all here. So as it seems, there's constant squabbles at every level of the government. Just rest assured, there are public servants working here that are just doing amazing work, and they're doing it quietly, uh, and they're doing it with really no oomph or hype around what they're doing, but it truly is amazing every day to watch this Leviathan move swiftly as it does. And that's really what we did with the innovation doctrine, right? And that's what we did. And I know DOT has done with their innovation principles. First order was pointing out the fact that a lot of this is what we do today. We're just elevating and we're calling attention to the fact we have people every day across government really driving innovation forward. And if anything, I hope this conversation is an ode to those government innovators so they know they're appreciated. Yeah, that's great. An amazing place to leave it. Dan, thank you so much for coming on Decoder. I really appreciate it. Appreciate it. Thanks, Neil. 
My thanks again to Dan McCoy for taking the time to be on Decoder today. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed the show. As always, I'd love to hear what you think of Decoder. You can email us at decoder at theverge.com or hit me up directly. I'm at Reckless on Twitter. If you like Decoder, please share it with your friends and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you really like the show, hit us with that five-star review. Decoder is a production of The Verge and part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today's episode was produced by Creighton DeSimone and Jackie McDermott. It was edited by Callie Wright. The Decoder music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Our senior audio director is Andrew Marino. Our executive producer is Eleanor Donovan. We'll see you next time.